How many of you are ready for the word this morning? I am ready for God's word. Let us pray. Father, we're so thankful um, for resurrection. We're thankful because the resurrection of Jesus attests to our own resurrection. Uh, Holy Spirit, we just recognize you here this morning. Uh, you are the one that makes the kingdom real. We thank you because we don't have a dead, dry religion. We have a Jesus who is alive and well and living on the inside of us. So Father, this morning, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you light our candles and enlighten our darkness. Uh, we ask that resurrection be experienced in every life. Uh, it is you that is able uh, to raise a valley of dead dry bones and make them a mighty army. Uh, let the breath of God come this morning. Let your people be raised as a mighty army in this time uh, for the glory of your name. We give you thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, I sort of gave you a synopsis of my whole message. So we're going to sort of break it down and unpack it this morning. But you know, resurrection is the most important event on the Christian calendar. It is more important, for instance, than Christmas. Thank God for the incarnation. Thank God that Jesus came. We celebrate that, the manifestation of God in the flesh. But Jesus came, or he was born to die. His purpose for coming was to demonstrate the love of God for us by dying in our place. He was born to die. You know, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says that Jesus was made to be sin for us. He went to the cross in our place in order that you and I may be made the righteousness of God in Him. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he may bring us to God. So the purpose of him coming, the purpose of him being born, was to die. But you see, the New Testament makes it very clear that the resurrection was absolutely essential for our salvation. And if you've been coming for the Kingdom Foundation classes, we've been unpacking that because it is important that you and I understand the significance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection was absolutely important or essential to our salvation. The death of Jesus did not complete the redemptive work. When he said on the cross, it is finished, he wasn't saying, I have completed the redemptive work. He was saying that I have done everything I need to do to be a pure Lamb of God that is eligible to be in sacrifice for the sins of the world. I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. I have fulfilled every commandment um, that was given for righteousness according to the law. It is finished, he said, and he was prepared to be fully offered up as our Lamb. So, the death on the cross was not the end. Without the resurrection, salvation would have been incomplete. Apart from the resurrection, the death of Jesus would have been meaningless. If you have a quick look at Romans chapter 4 verse 25, 
it says he was delivered up for our offenses and he was raised for our justification. So he went to the cross as our substitute. He paid the price for our sin. He suffered for us. He entered into the death that was ours. But then he was raised for our justification. So without the resurrection, there would be no justification. You and I will still be dead in our sins. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, it says, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Verse 17 says, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Thank God for the resurrection. In Romans chapter 6 verse 5, the Bible says that if we are united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. We died with him, but thank God we didn't stay dead. Are you with me? We died with him. We were in Christ when he went to the cross. We were in Christ when he was buried. We were in Christ when he died. But thank God he rose again from the dead because we were in Christ when he was risen from the dead. The Passion Translation of Romans 6, 5 puts it this way. It says, since we are permanently grafted into him to experience a death like his, then we are permanently grafted into him to experience a resurrection like his and the new life that it imparts. Hallelujah. Oh, say with me the word permanent. permanent. It says, if we're united, if we're permanently grafted into his experience of death. You know, the Bible says that he that is dead is freed from sin. It's a permanent thing. The penalty on sin on your life has been broken forever. You died with him. The claim that sin has over your life is terminated. Hallelujah. It says, if we have been permanently grafted into the experience of a death like his, then we are also permanently grafted into him to experience a resurrection like his and the new life that it imparts. You know, one of the beauties of the death, burial, and resurrection is that everything Jesus got as a result of his resurrection, we get as well because we were permanently grafted in him. Hallelujah. And that's why the Bible says that when he raised him from the dead, he raised us up together with him. And when he seated him at the right hand of God, we were seated or we are seated together in him. That's why when he rose from the dead and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He said immediately, you go therefore. Hallelujah. Because we are permanently grafted together in him in his resurrection. Thank God for resurrection. Say to your neighbor, thank God for resurrection. But you know, today I want to focus on another aspect of resurrection. I want to briefly examine the process the Father led Jesus through that culminated in his resurrection. The process, everyone say the process. 
The process that the Father led Jesus through that culminated in his resurrection. And the reason I'm doing this is in order for you and I to use it as a template for our own resurrection. You're tracking with me. Now we have already experienced a spiritual resurrection, a spiritual rebirth. We are already in Christ. We already have new life in Christ. We are already in union with God. So we don't need to do anything to experience that apart from believing in what Jesus did for us at the cross. But what I'm focusing on here today is understanding the process of God's dealings with us. The process that he took Christ through is the same process that he's going to take you and I through. Hallelujah. You know, we have the right to use Christ's death and resurrection as a template. Because if you look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, uh, I'll look at the New King James first. It says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Look at the passion translation of that. 1 Peter 4 verse 1. Why are we using Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as a template? You know, God is no respecter of persons. In actual fact, if you read John 17, you will read in Jesus' prayer, part of what he said was, Father, let them know that you love them as much as you love me. Yeah? So the love of the Father that took his son through a process is the same love that's going to take you through the same process. Amen. The Passion Translation of 1 Peter 4.1 says, it says, Since Christ, though innocent, suffered in his flesh for you, now you also must be prepared. Everyone say be prepared. You also must be a prepared soldier having the same mindset. For whoever has died in his body is done with sin. It says, since Christ, though innocent. Everyone say, though innocent. Oh, come on. I need you to track with me this morning. It says, since Christ, though innocent, suffered in his flesh for you, now you also must be a prepared soldier having the same mindset. For whoever has died in his body is done with sin. So he's saying that there is something about the process that Jesus went through that is not unique. What he did was unique, but the process is not unique. And it is a template that will be applied again and again by God in our training. So that's why it says, arm yourself with the same what? With the same mindset as a prepared soldier. Hallelujah. We need to have the same mindset. What mindset? The mindset is the understanding that there is a real resurrection. But that resurrection will be experienced 
after a process of suffering, death, and burial. Hallelujah. There's a real resurrection. Say to your neighbor, there's a real resurrection. And then quickly say to them, arm yourself with the same mindset. For whatever you are called to achieve in life and in God, there is a real promised land that God has for you, but it goes through the path of the wilderness and battles. There is a real place of prominence and significance that God has prepared for you, but it follows a process of betrayal you might find a pit along the way. You might experience real false accusation. You might be forgotten by those who you have helped along the way. But through that process, there is a place of prominence that God has earmarked for you. So the template that God took Jesus through is the same template that you and I are going to go through if we are going to experience the resurrection and the significance that God has for us. You know, I bring encouragement to you today. My encouragement is look at the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And understand that that resurrection speaks about your own resurrection if you will submit to God and follow his process. Hallelujah. His process is not the destination. I'll say that again. His process is not what? It's not the destination. Irrespective of how bleak it currently looks, there is a resurrection ahead if we follow the process. You haven't arrived yet. Receive strength from his word and keep moving. Because the process is not the resurrection. You know the word resurrection, the Greek word anastasis, literally means a standing up or arising to stand up again and you know there are two points that I would like to make about resurrection this morning we'll see it played out in the resurrection of Jesus and we'll see it played out in all our lives if we follow what the process the first point is this resurrection is the infusion of life after death. Hallelujah. It might sound basic. You know, life coming into death. Meaning, in this situation, all signs of life were gone. Okay? It was not being energized. No, death has to occur for there to be resurrection. Okay? So, all signs of life were gone. Everybody had verified this as dead. And then all of a sudden life comes. Hallelujah. You know the Romans verified that Jesus was dead. In fact, they wanted to knock his, uh, break his bones uh, because it would help speed up the death process. 
But when they pierced his side and, and water and blood flowed out and uh, it was separated, it was confirmation even medically that he had died. So they made sure that he was dead, okay? Because they had heard allegations that he was going to be raised from the dead. So they made perfect sure of perfectly sure that he was dead. So in resurrection, everybody may have already sentenced it as gone. But the person who understands the process of God understands that there is life after death. Now I want us to look at our lives through the lens of Jesus' resurrection. If you look at Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. And you know, the Holy Spirit being who he is, as I speak by the anointing of the Holy Ghost, what is going to be happening is, as I'm talking, you are thinking about situations in your life. As you are trying to concentrate, he's helping you to listen to me, but he's, he's putting the lens of that situation. That's the thing he's talking about. You know that thing that you have closed away and thought this one is over? He's saying, yes, yes, yes. This is eligibility for what? For resurrection. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, I'm going to read the New King James. It says, therefore, we also, everyone say, we also. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, who is the subject of this writing? Who is he writing to? Us. Notice the number of times he says us. Seeing that we are surrounded, let us lay aside the sin that so easily besets us. Let us run. So he's talking about information that is pertinent for our own race. Look at verse 2 and 3. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So he's talking to us. He uses Jesus as an example or as an illustration of certain important lessons that you and I have to embrace and inculcate as we run our race. Because if we don't, we are going to become weary because along the way, it's going to look like it's over. And he keeps saying, remember the pattern of Jesus. It is a pattern that will be replicated over and over again. It may look like it's over, but there is a resurrection that is available. There's a resurrection that's available. If you look at this in the Passion Translation, I'm going to read verses 2 and 3. And we're going to take our time in dissecting this. It says, we look away from the natural realm and we fasten our gaze onto Jesus who birthed faith within us and who leads us forward into faith's perfection his example is this now let us pause for a minute 
notice he's saying that your walk with God is a journey of faith. You know, Romans 1.17 says the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4 says the just shall live by faith. So this is a journey of faith. He says Jesus birthed faith in us and he's leading us forward into faith's perfection. So the journey of faith has a start point and it has perfection. It has an end point. We must follow Jesus' example where we complete the journey to the destination. Are you with me? Because the destination in Jesus' example was what? Resurrection. All right? So he's saying that remember, it's a journey of faith. It has a standpoint and it has an end point. Okay? Complete the journey. Don't give up on the way. Don't stop halfway. You know, in 1 Peter 1.9, it says, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is an end to our faith. In your case, it might be the manifestation of healing in your body. It might be the restoration of your marriage. It might be getting married. It might be the success of your business. It might be the fulfillment of your destiny. That is the end, the place of perfection. Are you with me? But it is a journey of faith. It has a standpoint. It has a process, but there is a destination. So he says, follow the example of Jesus. It's a good example because he got to the destination. Are you with me? Let us keep reading. Now, now look at the example of Jesus. Back to Hebrews 12, 2. In the Passion Translation. So it says, his example is this. It says, because his heart was focused. Oh, someone listening this morning. He said, because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you will be his. He endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation. So there is an endurance that is required. There is a conquering that is required. But the only way that you are going to have the strength is if you ensure that your heart is focused on the goal. Don't allow anything to distract you. Amen. It says because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing you will be his, he endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation. The New King James says, he endured the cross despising the shame. You know, in this Passion Translation, there was a footnote that said he thought nothing of its shame. You know, um, Jesus endured the public shame of the cross. What did he do with the public shame? He endured it. Now, you know, people talk about, you know, the Lord will not let you go through shame. Well, I get why they say that. But, you know, if we're going to follow the pattern of Jesus, there's a particular kind of shame that you are going to have to endure if you are going to get to the destination of resurrection. 
Because if we think this is about avoiding shame, then we are not on the path to resurrection. Do you know that crucifixion on the cross was considered the worst kind of death? In Jesus' time, it was considered worse than decapitation, that they carry you and they cut your body dead. Okay? It was considered worse than decapitation. It was considered worse by being killed by wild animals. It was considered worse than being burned alive. Because in the process of crucifixion, the full wickedness of the executioners was allowed full expression. Everything was allowed. Because at the end of the day, we're going to crucify this guy. So any kind of humiliation, any kind of brutality was allowed. So even amongst the Romans, it was actually banned by Roman law. And a Roman citizen could not be crucified. They could be killed. They could be decapitated. They could be thrown to wild animals. But they can't be crucified because it was considered the ultimate shame. The horror of the beaten. And you know, I'm not going to try to break that down because others have done a better job than I am. We've done it in previous times. But the horror of the beating. The beating was so bad that most people that were going to end up being crucified died through the beating process because the beating was such that the very intestines would be exposed as a result of the beating. It was brutal. The beating was brutal. The horror of the brutality of the beating. And then apart from the beating, the crucifixion was done in public. It was done along the busiest roads. If you look at John 19.20, it talks about how Jesus was crucified next to the city. So everybody, you know how you are trying to hide the fact that you know you are going through something. On this occasion, everybody is going to know. In fact, people who don't even know you, as they are going about their business, they'll be drawn to, you know, your shame is being paraded when you're crucified. You know, sometimes we look at the pictures of the crucifixion and we see this cross and Jesus, you know, high on this cross. In actual fact, victims of crucifixion were kept closer to the ground so that they could allow stray dogs to chew on their legs as they walked past. And then they were stripped naked. You know, when the Bible says that, you know, they were casting lots for his garments, what it's trying to let you know, trying to make it PG, is the fact that, you know, they stripped him naked to cast lots on his garment. So imagine this, the horror of the beating, the public exposure, the degradation, and then the actual death. How do they die? I mean, they're on the cross. They're crucified, but they're still alive. So how do they die? Well, they die in one of several ways. Number one, the person on the cross may actually choke themselves to death because of the pain and tiredness. Their necks are down and they're not able to lift up their head, so they actually choke themselves to death. Another way of death is just through the blood loss. Another way of death is dehydration because 
people who were crucified, sometimes they stayed there for days. So they were thirsty and they finally, under the hot sun of Palestine, dehydrated to death. Unimaginable pain, public humiliation, and horrible death. The Bible says that he endured the agony of the cross and he conquered its humiliation, thinking nothing of its shame. Wow. Now, I'm not saying this is what you're going to go through. I'm just saying that the process he went through, yeah, the template to resurrection, you are going to go through some stuff. But now look at him. He's exalted and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Bible says he thought nothing of the shame. Shame may mean, and you know, I even hesitate to say these things because it's so, you know, when you've just talked about the shame of Jesus, this is like nothing in comparison. But shame may mean living in a neighborhood you may not prefer because you're trying to save money. Shame may mean being the oldest in your class because you've decided to go and get that degree after years of ignoring your education. Shame may mean it might, you might be taking um, taxes and bus for a while even though you have a bank job because you don't want to borrow and you'd rather save money instead. It may mean having a small wedding because you can't afford it rather than trying to get into debt from so many people. It may mean being ridiculed by your colleagues because you tell them that you're not down with having a girlfriend because you're married now and they start laughing at you. It may mean speaking up at a board meeting when they are conniving to do something unrighteous and you through the wisdom of God is trying to show them a different way out. It may mean the shame of exploring a new direction after you've turned 40 when you realize that you've been going the wrong way. It may mean staying a virgin when everyone is goading you on to have premarital sex. It would mean being the odd one out. You see, if you're going to walk with God, you need to get comfortable with being the odd one out. Just like Jesus thought nothing of the shame. You know, this shame was not shame with God. It was not shame with God. The Bible says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to make him sick. It was not shame with God. It was shame in the context of his community. Are you with me? These things that the Lord will lead us through. He's leading us through these things because he's taking us to a place of resurrection. Hallelujah. A place of resurrection. There will always be a shame that you have to think nothing of in your path to his purpose for your life. But the way Jesus did it was he focused on the prize so he despised the shame. Look at verse 3. It says, so consider carefully how Jesus faced such intense opposition from sinners who opposed their own souls so that you would not become worn down and cave in under life's pressures. After all, you have not reached the point of sweating blood in your opposition to sin. He says, compared to the pressure that Jesus went through, you have not come close to that. So it is important to understand this 
and adjust your mindset so you won't get worn down. If you're trying to keep up with the Joneses and live in Christ, you are going to get worn down. Yeah? Because the way he's going to get you to where he wants you to go is going to be very different from the way the world chooses to go. All right? So he's given us this advice so that we'll not be worn down and caving under life's pressures. Let us um, look at 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll look at it in the, um, in the Passion. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 13. You know, as we consider this, in the back of your mind, keep looking at Jesus. Look at where he is now. Where is he? He's exalted. He's been resurrected. He's seated at the right hand of God. Well, that is your destination. In 1 Peter 4 verse 13, I'll read it real quick to verse 19. It says, Beloved friends, if life gets extremely difficult with many tests, don't be bewildered as though something strange were overwhelming you. Instead, continue to rejoice for you in a measure have shared in the sufferings of the anointed one so that you can share in the revelation of his glory and celebrate with even greater gladness. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are greatly blessed because the spirit of glory and power, who is the spirit of God, rests upon you. Let none of you merit suffering as a murderer or thief or criminal. If you're a murderer, thief or criminal and they're persecuting you, it's not because that is not the path of the Lord. Or as one who meddles in the affairs of others. If you suffer for being a Christian, don't consider it a disgrace, but a privilege. Glorify God because you carry the anointed one's name. For the time is ripe for judgment to begin in God's household. And if it starts with us, what will be the fate of those who refuse to obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are barely saved, so what will become of the wicked and godless? So then, those who suffer for following God's will should enfold their lives into the Creator, who will never fail them, and continue to always do what is right. Continue to always do what is right, because God will never fail you. If you suffer for being a Christian, don't consider it a disgrace, but a privilege. Amen. And you know, the suffering of being a Christian is not just because you stand for morality, when uh, maybe others in your context are not. Suffering as a Christian means going God's way. Your priorities are different. The Bible says we seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all other things are added to us. Amen. We don't trust in uncertain riches. We trust in the living God who gives us all everything freely to enjoy. Amen. So if you are suffering as a Christian, it is not a disgrace, it is a privilege because it is a pathway to resurrection. So the first uh, point about resurrection that I wanted to make is the fact that it is always the infusion of life after death. There is a process that you're going to go through that looks like death, but at the end of it, there will always be resurrection. The second point I want to make is that the origin of resurrection is always external. The origin of resurrection is always external. What do I mean by that? It's what you see in the movies. If you're watching one of these, um, you know, medical movies like ER or Grey's Anatomy or one of these other medical movies, 
you always see the scenario where somebody is in the emergency room, their hearts have stopped. And then they carry a defibrillator, you know, one of those machines. And then they come along to the person with the, uh, with the paddles. And you hear them say, uh, Claire, and then bam, and they, they infuse an electric shock to the heart. And um, after, um, after that is done, um, the electric charge will restore uh, the normal sort of sinus rhythm of the heart. So that is just a, a small example of a resurrection. It, it doesn't come from the patient. It doesn't say, oh, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. Oh, I've died. And then... <laughs> yeah? So the resurrection process is always an external thing. You can't raise yourself up. And that's something we must understand about resurrection. You know when Jesus was going to die, in John 10, 18, he said, No one takes my life from me, or no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay down, and I have the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. When Jesus was saying, I have the power to raise it up again, he was speaking in the context of his union with the Father and his union with the Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible says that there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are what? They are one. Because when you analyze the way that Jesus was raised from the dead, you will see that he was raised from the dead not by himself, but by another person of the Trinity. So for instance, if you look at Romans chapter 6 verse 4, or actually before we look at Romans, let's look at Psalm 16 verse 9. I'm going to read the Amplified Version. Psalm 16 verse 9. The Lord granted David prophetic insight into the happenings when Jesus died and when he was in hell. Verse 9 says, therefore my heart is glad. Psalm 16 verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory, my inner self rejoices. My body too shall rest and confidently dwell in safety. For you will not abandon me to shield the place of the dead. Neither will you suffer or allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. When Jesus was in hell, bearing the penalty of our sin, resurrection was effected. At the point when divine justice was satisfied. And as he went through that process, Jesus trusted in the love of the Father to raise him up from the dead when divine justice was satisfied. The King James says, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will not abandon me in hell. So Jesus' faith was secure in the love of the Father and in the goodness of God. And that is why in Romans chapter 6 verse 4, 
It says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we will walk in newness of life. So Jesus was raised by the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father is the Holy Spirit. Because Romans 8 verse 11 speaks about the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead and he will quicken our own mortal bodies by the same Spirit that raised him from the dead. Hallelujah. So the Spirit of God went into hell at the point of the Father's sanction when divine justice was satisfied and it was the Holy Spirit that went into hell and quickened and made Jesus alive. Amen. But while he was going through his hell tormenting experience, guess what Jesus was doing? Jesus' flesh rested in hope. Hallelujah. He wasn't fretting. He wasn't worried. He wasn't intimidated because he understood that resurrection was going to come from the father and his father would surely raise him from the dead because his father loves him. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6 in the New King James. And then we'll look at the Passion Translation. What are we doing? We are looking at a template for your resurrection and my resurrection. Because if we do not adjust our minds to this, we are going to become weary and we're going to give up on the way. Hallelujah. But there is a place of perfection of your faith, the fulfillment of your faith, the end of your faith. It's not over yet. And that's why the writer of Hebrews is saying, look at the example of Jesus. And as you embrace the example of Jesus, you are going to start running with patience. Hallelujah. But you know, this is not a lackadaisical, you know, half-hearted run. It is a run of focus, of confidence, knowing that there is an end to this process. In 1 Peter 5 verse 6, it says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Verse 7, casting all your care on him because he cares for you. You know, we're going to have to humble ourselves under the process. The reason why we can humble ourselves is because we know that God cares for us. Are you with me? That's why Jesus could humble himself. Because he knew that the father will not let his soul be abandoned in hell. He would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. He trusted in the love of the Father for him. So he humbled himself. Look at the Passion Translation. The Passion Translation says, If, if you bow low in God's awesome presence, he will eventually exalt you as you leave the timing in his hands. It's very difficult to leave the timing in somebody else's hands. Very difficult. Because we want to control our own destiny. That's why it's called humility. Jesus left the timing of his resurrection in the Father's hands. It says, if you will bow low in God's awesome presence, he will eventually exalt you as you leave the timing in his hands. Pour out all your worries 
and stress upon him and leave them there. For he always tenderly cares for you. Hallelujah. Not sure how I can expand on that. Because it's pretty obvious, but it's very weighty what it's telling us to do. Yeah. He says he will eventually exalt you as you leave the timing in his hands. Your worries, your cares, leave them there. God does not want you stressed. In fact, when you read the Bible, the New Testament, you'll see that worry is a sin. Anxiety is a sin. Because anxiety and worry, the foundation of those two things is fear. Fear is a picture concerning an outcome that you don't want. It's a picture about the future that the devil is painting. And when you are afraid, it means that you are embracing that future as a possibility. You are, having, you are expressing more confidence in the devil's ability to destroy your life than in God's ability to save you. That's what anxiety is. He says, leave your anxieties at his feet. Trust him because he cares for you. And when you do that and bow low in his presence, he will exalt you in due time. Amen. You know, in uh, John 12, 24, the Bible says that except a kind of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth what? Much fruit. Verse 25, if you read verse 25, which is connected to that, it said he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know, the Passion Translation of verse 25 says, The person who loves his life and pampers himself will miss true life. But the person who detaches his life from this world and abandons himself to me will find true life and enjoy it forever. The person who abandons his life to me. That means the person who chooses to trust me with their lives. Who chooses to trust me with their worries. Who chooses to trust me with their anxieties. Who truly embraces the process and humbles themselves under my mighty hand and waits on me for my time of exaltation. That's what Jesus did. Faith in the love of the Father. Faith in the goodness of God. The resurrection always comes after the process of death. After the process of death. What does death mean? look like death looks like you know what it's over there is no other way this can come to pass except God comes through for me faith in the love of the father you know the thing about faith Romans 5 2 says that it's through faith that we access everything that God has for us and when we go through pressure what it does is it shows you where your faith really is because in 1 Peter 1 verse 6, it says that you greatly uh, rejoice, but now for a while, if need be, you'll be grieved through various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being made much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, what pressure does is it shows us where our faith really is. We normally think that our faith is in God until the pressure mounts. Have you ever found that out? The fire always brings the impurities to the top. And in order to access what God has for us, 
in order to access the power of the destiny God has for us, we need the faith of God. It is not our faith in our own ability. And what pressure does, what the process does, it takes away all the fat from your faith. In all those things that you thought were faith, but as it increases, you realize that you know what? Uh, it wasn't actually faith in God. The process will strip you of everything else. It will not be your pastor's faith. You know, whenever a pastor is preaching, you feel great. Pastor is not going to be with you next week when you're in your office. It's not going to be your husband's faith or your wife's faith or your parents' faith. It's not going to be faith in your company, especially when they want to kick you out. It's not going to be faith in the economy. It's not going to be faith in your intelligence or your strength that is needed. It is a faith that rests on God's word and its integrity alone. You know, we say we are believing God, but the very first question we ask is, what has God said that guarantees the outcome you are believing for? That's the very first question. If you don't know what God has said, then you don't have the faith of God. Yeah? If you don't know what God has said, because the faith of God finds its resting place on God's word and the integrity of that word alone. You know, a few weeks ago when I was sharing about love stories from Asia, and he gave the example, he talked about philipsis and persecution and the pressing. And um, a practical example in the life of Paul uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And, he, and Paul said something in verse 9 that I'd like us to look at from the Passion Translation real quick. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9, they had gone through this process of hardship. And he makes this statement. He says, it felt like we had a death sentence written upon our hearts. And we still feel it to this day. It has taught us to lose all faith in ourselves and to place all of our trust in the God who raises the dead. It has taught us to do what? To lose all faith in ourselves and it has taught us to place all of our trust in the God who raises the dead. Now what does that tell us about what Paul was doing a few minutes before this? All his faith was not in, in God. Are you with me? And you know we all have things that we can rest on. We're having faith in God oh, but uh -uh, don't you know the school I went to? I have faith in God oh, but I have this great doctor who is on my speed dial. I have faith in God, oh, but we don't usually say it like that, but in our psyche, we are trusting God, but, but we will get through processes. And the reason why we go through processes like this is because God wants us to take us to a place of resurrection. And in order to access the grace of God that you need in this time, you need the faith of God. And situations need to happen that show us where our faith really is. And this situation, by God's grace, help us to get to a place where we realize that, you know, I was not really trusting in God. Because believe you me, if I start panicking when things go from bad to worse, 
then it means that my confidence was not in the word of God because the word of God was the same before the situation got better, before it got worse, while it got worse still, the word of God hadn't changed. So if my faith was resting on the word, then why would it change? Are you tracking with me here? The reason why in the midst of hell, Jesus could rest in hope was because his faith was resting on what the father had said. So whether it looked good or it looked bad, his faith was not going to be shaken because it was founded on the integrity of God and his word. Amen. Thank God for dreams. Thank God for prophetic revelation. But you don't need prophetic revelation to believe God. Hallelujah. All you need is the word of God. You know, those three Hebrew children, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they answered Nebuchadnezzar, they walked into the fire because they trusted God. They took that word into the fire with them. Are you with me? They did not quibble. They did not stutter because their faith rested in a God who raises the dead. Look at Abraham, and then I'll close. Let's read a few verses from Abraham. In Romans chapter 4 verse 18, we're talking about the template for resurrection. The process that the father executes time and time again. The process is important. The process, because the Bible says that if you don't go through the process, you will abide alone. But if you want to experience the fruitfulness of God, it comes through a process of death, burial, and resurrection. Except the kind of wheat fall into the ground and die. It abides alone. But when it dies, it brings forth much grain. In Romans 4.18, it says, speaking about Abraham, it says, Who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. So not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. Wow. So a dead body just shows that it's a candidate for what? For resurrection. He did not consider his body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So they were twice dead. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Now, why was his faith strengthened? It was not strengthened because his body came alive. It was strengthened because irrespective of what happened, the word of God remained the same. It wasn't strengthened because all of a sudden Sarah started ovulating. It wasn't strengthened because all of a sudden his sperm count increased. No. The strength of his faith rested on the integrity of God and his word alone. Have you seen people believe in God for children? And they believe God and they are confident until, in the woman's case, the menstrual cycle kicks in and she begins to bleed and she gets depressed. And you wonder, and I understand it. Well, maybe I don't, but, you know, I can imagine that scenario. Because there is something that is happening that shows you that it is impossible that you are pregnant. But, you know, your pregnancy is not based on whether you bleed or you don't. Your pregnancy is based on the word becoming flesh. 
So when the situation changed for the worse, the Bible says that Abraham was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. So you see that his faith was resting on something. What was it resting on? It was resting on the word of God. And it wasn't like it was rested there. He was fully convinced based on the word. He changed his name to Abraham and he began to give glory to God. Not because people said that five ways to get your miracle. Say five hallelujahs. But his confidence in God's word resulted in joy. Because whenever he woke up, the word remained the same. When he went to bed, the word remained the same. When things were good, the word remained the same. When things were bad, the word remained the same. When Sarah was pleased, the word remained the same. And because his confidence was founded on the word and the integrity of the word, all he did was rejoice and he began to walk and take action. And every time somebody called him Abraham, he said, no, you don't understand. My name is Abraham because I am the father of many nations. And as he began to do that, the word became flesh. And he experienced resurrection. Even after Sarah died, he married Keturah and had more children. So this resurrection was permanent. Praise God. <laughs> Rest does not mean you're doing nothing. Rest is when you have toiled all night and caught nothing. And yet at the word of God, you cast your nets out again. In confidence. That's what rest is. Rest is letting your guard down and truly loving again. Because that is what love does. Even though you have had so many bad experiences. That's what rest is. Rest is acting right towards your spouse. Even in their bad behavior. Because you are trusting God. Rest is maintaining your joy. Because you know that the word does not change. And your faith is rested on the word and the integrity of the word. And the love of the father for you. That is what rest is. Rest is saying I will not cast away my confidence. Because my confidence in God's word will be rewarded. I understand that I have need of patience. Because when I have done the will of God, I will receive the promise. That is what rest really is. You know, I believe that Christians ought to be the toughest people on planet earth. I believe we ought to be the toughest, the fiercest people in business. Because we have the opportunity to frame our world on the word of God. And when we have the word of God on a matter, we can run to the ends of the earth in confidence. That's what Abraham did. That's what Jesus did. So when we look at Jesus in hell, in the midst of persecution, what did he say? He said, my body shall rest and confidently dwell in safety, for you will not abandon me in Sheol, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. So where is Jesus now? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's why in Philippians 2.9 he says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Look at Jesus now. The resurrection of Jesus was not a coincidence. Your resurrection will not be a coincidence either. 
It will be because you have followed your faith to its completion, to its destination. It's because you have not been weary in well-doing. It's because you have remained consistent in the word of God. Remember that the process is not the destination. Don't become worn down and cave in under life's pressures. After all, as the Bible says, you have not reached the point of sweating blood in opposition to sin. Go back to the word. Go back to what God has said. Encourage yourself with the word of God. Start acting like the word of God is true. You don't need a dream. You don't need a vision. You just need the word of God for you. Amen. And embrace that word to your heart. And begin to found your heart on the word. And go through that process. And trust the Father. He will exalt you in due time. The Spirit of God will come into your situation. As you continue to walk by faith. And in humility to his word. So the resurrection of Jesus signals your own resurrection. Uh, let us begin to look at those areas of dead things in our hearts and in our lives. And let us celebrate the fact that there is a signal of the possibility of resurrection. Amen. Well, praise the Lord.